Welcome to another episode of From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. This week's episode features Sam Lawman. Sam and I sit down to discuss all things posture. There's many different variables or factors that tie to the concept of posture, such as static posture versus posture in dynamic or variable circumstances. Posture determines shape, and shape determines expression. We often hear cues and constraints that encourage certain positions and movement affordances. The bottom line is, posture is important. And I really enjoyed how Sam was able to share some of his findings on nonverbal communication and posture. From an evolutionary perspective, how we portray self to the world conveys if we want to be seen, deem ourselves to be dominant or in control, or want to avoid detection or appear submissive and resigned. It's not just for the above situations mentioned. As Sam mentions in our conversation, things that draw our interest literally draw us in, and things that disgust us make us move away. Posture equals presentation, and presentation could be argued to equal realization. What postures do you naturally revert to? Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Curtis, and my guest today is Sam Lawman. Sam, excited to sit down and talk about posture with you. Um, I'm excited to see kind of your perspective and what you're going to offer here, because looking at athletic performance, looking at locomotion, looking at movement, posture can really inform our capabilities. It's kind of like a starting point for me. Uh, I want to talk about, you know, static versus dynamic postures. And, you know, you look at posture and, and some things may be determined as a bad position, but for certain actions or for certain activities that may actually be deemed to be a good position. So just going to center around posture, let you kind of bounce around and talk about something I know that you're really uh, intrigued by. And it's something that I find to be extremely important. So before we dive into this with our first couple of talking points, I just want to give you an opportunity to talk about what you've just accomplished, what you're uh, currently tied into, and then we'll jump into the specifics. Yeah, thank you, Jesse. Thank you for having me. Really excited to get started here. So I'm originally from Sydney, Australia. I came over here to America. I can't, I can't tell by your accent either. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I came over here in uh, 2016, did my Master's of Athletic Training at the University of Texas at Arlington. Blessed to really get to work with you know some great athletic trainers as well as work with the Dallas Wings to kind of did my feet in the professional realm and then I came back and did my PhD, which I just recently finished. So, um, but yeah, my PhD work was all within posture and I know we'll talk about a whole breadth of topics and go down a bunch of rabbit holes. Uh, but specifically mine was looking at posture and the nonverbal and the psychological ramifications of good or bad posture and, you know, kind of discussing what the implications are. Before we kind of go into these different, as you said, buckets, I guess, pertaining to posture, can we just talk about an overall definition? I'll throw a couple of things that I've actually gathered after I see what you present, but let's first define and discuss what posture is um, from just a static perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So posture is just defined in a sim most simple terms as the position of your body, either sitting, standing, or lying down. So I know you talked about static, so we're just going to take one frame of an individual in a sitting, standing, or lying down pose and call that their posture. But that's also going to dictate how their movements flow, and then that leads into the kind of that dynamic posture. Waving a magic wand, our ideal posture in any of those three circumstances would just put a minimal amount of stress and strain on the body. And some things as far as like terms I'll throw in there with you, gravity becomes increasingly important as we go 
even whenever you're static, obviously we're always dealing with gravity unless we leave the yeah. planet, right? But it becomes increasingly important probably as we do some of those dynamic movements, uh, really high velocity movements like sprinting and jumping. How you deal with gravity is really going to, I guess, inform your postural response, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And that's going to pertain to some of the overactivity and underactivity we see in some of the musculature just to keep us erect is going to have some sort of expenditure on a muscular level. So um, yeah, gravity is huge. And definitely when we start talking about, like you mentioned, we're going to be sitting and standing for the most part. So that posture, that gravity is going to be kind of a downward pressure, but uh, that's going to accumulate over time. And it's particularly becomes important when we talk about how sedentary our lifestyles have become and, and um, just, you know, students, athletes, office workers, whatever it may be. And one other thing I want to throw in there, it's kind of, I guess you would say, <clears throat> maybe out in left field, but I don't think we often tie things into this. I, I often like to mention like the evolutionary biology behind things and just like the the way that we respond to different things and like how we may naturally try and make ourselves larger or smaller in response. I'm saying that because posture is also kind of like how we express ourselves to the outside world as well. So if there's anything you want to add in there about that, because I think there's some I guess, responses to where we don't understand fully what's going on. It's kind of behind the curtain, subconscious, but we're expressing something to the world. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you touched on it perfectly because a lot of the work that I did originated from that nonverbal communication and psychological background. And it's very interesting in that field because, you know, being familiar with the strength and conditioning and the musculoskeletal rehabilitation stuff, you know that we do something and then we prove it and then we go and report it. In the psychology realm, it's a little bit different. So, you know, the first reportings of this was by Charles Darwin back in the 1870s. And then we've spent the last, you know, 100 plus years trying to prove what he saw. And that's exactly what he did. You know, he saw that both in dogs and in humans, erect postures kind of show dominance and, and power versus those contracted smaller postures and trying to take up less space in a social era would be more indicative of submission and subordination. And some of the other things that I guess I would throw in there before we kind of jump into some other areas here, posture can really affect your respiration. Posture mm -hmm. can affect your overall circulation or your circulatory system, and then also digestion as well. So respiration to me, being an athletic prep person working with uh, athletes, that's really important to me. So can we talk about how posture can affect respiration? Just, just kind of touch on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So we've seen the two postures that we'll probably talk about the most today, the forward head and the rounded shoulder posture. So definitely those upper body postures. And there has been research looking at the negative correlations shown between someone who has forward head posture and their, you know, force vital capacity or their peak expiratory flow. So in an athletic setting, that's, that's really big. And, you know, as our respiration rate increases with the energy demands that are required, this does become a huge thing. So whether this is a decrease of, you know, 1% or 0.5%, the magnitude of that increases as that, you know, intensity and duration goes up. So uh, that's where it becomes really interesting kind of going forward into an athletic realm. So you can see that's kind of like, I guess, the primer for the conversation of where we're going. We just mm -hmm. touched on a lot of different areas here, things that may yeah. be more emotional or more psych uh, psychological or something such as that and into a performance realm, you know, physiology and all that. So, yeah. I mean, this is a topic that's really mm -hmm. wide and we'll kind of bounce around and we'll see where you lead us here as we go through this. Um, but looking at posture in a static way, something I had going through my mind, whenever you're assessing posture, let's kind of bounce to the end and then we'll kind of bounce back up because I'd like to kind of talk about 
assessing posture statically mm-hmm. and then applying that to more dynamic movements if we could. So what are some of the main things that you're looking for in an overall screen for posture? Yeah, so kind of the gold standard that we've got, and I'll break these up between forward head and rounded shoulder posture. So the forward head posture, the gold standard is what we call craniovertebral angle. So we're going to take a lateral photograph of an individual and we're going to look at that angle from the C7 vertebrae to the tragus of the ear. And depending what your cutoff is, you're going to denote that as forward head posture or not. And that's been validated clinically. So that's kind of our gold standard that we will always go with. Uh, It's interesting we talked about gravity earlier because the rounded shoulder posture doesn't have that luxury, unfortunately. There is no gold standard. So when, you know, perusing the literature, there's not much, you know, consensus on how it's studied, which also leads to the kind of ambiguity when you look at the results and say, you know, things worked or they didn't work, but the measurement output is varied so, so much. So we have some rounded shoulder posture measures that are done, you know, supine while lying down, which again is going to impact because obviously we don't live our life lying down. So we got that gravity aspect again. We have, you know, using a plumb line from a ceiling, but then you have a visual cue. And then you also have a measurement against the wall. And again, you've got the wall to cue you. So it's not really representative. One that is becoming increasingly known is called scapular index, where you're actually calculating the distance between the sternal notch and the coracoid process, and then the posterior lateral acromion and the C7 vertebrae. And you put that, that numerator over the the denominator, multiply it by 100, and you get yourself a scapular index. Now, the huge issue with this one, obviously, it's not even that you know that your posture is being measured. Someone is actually pushing you in your posture points. So uh, something like the coracoid process is usually tended to palpation, particularly with athletes. So you're going to have a reflex when someone is trying to dig and find that exact measurement. So... Uh, there is a lot of ambiguity, especially with the round shoulder posture, but the forward head posture really has a nice kind of set in stone craniovertebral angle that looks really good for us. A couple of things that stood out to me, I'm, I'd be interested to see what you're going to say as far as the scapular relationship, I guess you would say to like overall posture, because I've seen both of these uh, in athletes that I've worked with, but I've really seen a lot of scapular issues and and that rounded uh, posture that we're talking about mm-hmm. and the overall core relationship. Like I'm not going to sit here. I'm not a real big core person. I'm not for yeah. or against things, but I'm looking more now at the pelvis versus, you know, thorax and how the scaps go into all this. So like how those two respond to one another. So can you talk a little bit, I guess, about anatomy here and whenever we do have this rounded posture, how that's going to influence perhaps downstream our pelvis, our midsection, those other things. Absolutely. And this is, you know, this term of mechanotransduction, which is what I'm about to talk about, that really does pertain to cells on that kind of microscopic level. So the mechanotransduction, we're providing a mechanical stimuli and getting a biochemical response. So the easy example we have, we lift weights, it creates a stress, it tells our body, all right, we need to prepare for this stress better than better for next time. So when we do have that rounded shoulder posture, we have a portion of our upper torso as well as our head moving forward from that midline. And there's gonna have to be compensatory mechanisms downstream. They're gonna have to fix and adjust for that. So A very common stat that's thrown around, I think it's been memed a bunch of times, but they did some research on, you know, the actual amount of forward head protrusion and how much stress that creates in the cervical spine. So at zero degrees, the head weighs about 10 to 12 pounds, but at 60 degrees of protrusion, it weighs up to 60 pounds. So the strength of that has to come from somewhere. And if neutral only predicates that these muscles 
exhibit 10 to 12 pounds of force to hold this head, 60 pounds is, you know, five times, five to six times the magnitude. So there are going to have to be some compensatory mechanisms and, and that does affect downstream, like you said, to the core or the lumbopelvic hip complex. And then that's where the respiration comes in probably as well, because your diaphragm is going to be in a less than optimal. Um, so, so going about back balancing to all the different things that we discussed right. there. So it's great to hear, you know, all these points interlock and connect along the way. Something else I'm interested in posture is an extremely reflexive is, is what I've most often seen referenced. Now, I, I don't want to get in too much hot water here, but as far as weakness, I've, I've heard you use the vocabulary a little bit because you have to say this muscle is inhibited or weakened or this yeah. one's strong. But in regards to reflexive stimuli, I kind of heard you kind of reference that a little bit. Can we talk about sensory integration or reflexive stimuli and its role in correcting posture? Yeah, straight into the hot water, mate. Jeez, here we go. All right. So, yes, we do have to tiptoe around this one uh, because we do – you know, I have quite a strong contention online about the overactivity, underactivity, and, you know, is it true or is it not? But research does kind of predicate itself to show that there are muscle tonicity differences when you do get some of these negative postures or even some of these negative emotions that accompany these postures. So when we look at treating these, yes, you have this overarching term, and it probably was, you know, originated from Dr. Vladimir Yanda, who was the famous Czech physical therapist we know as the father of rehab. And he had that upper cross syndrome that is so demonized online where you draw a cross with a lateral view of an individual. One line of those crosses is going to be overactive. The other one's going to be underactive. So again, this is a huge umbrella term and there are going to be nuances that affect each person depending on speciality or whatever it may be. But I think for the most part, that umbrella term is going to encompass a lot of people. So whether we look at that as a kind of a Pareto's principle of the 80-20 I do think it's going to cover a lot of bases when we look at that, but of course there are nuances with that. So I hope I answered your question there. As far as like from the podcast is from the ground up. So let's, let's talk about the role, I guess, of sensory integration or proprioception and what you've seen as far as how that can help with overall posture as well. There's some people who are rather famous, I guess you would say that do a lot of postural response things in response Mm -hmm. to proprioceptive means from the feet up into uh, some of these issues that we're actually talking about today. So I'd be interested to see what you have to say about any of that. There have been research kind of looking at the correlations between forward head posture and ankle dorsiflexion, where as forward head posture increases, dorsiflexion decreases. And we know how much of an issue downstream dorsiflexion is and how those ramifications kind of play themselves upstream. And I believe a few episodes ago, you had the foot expert on here kind of talking about some of those things. So that increasingly is becoming a bigger topic of discussion where we're not just looking at, you know, bench more, squat more, deadlift more. We are looking at those more nuances. So we started talking about the static posture and and looking at those as a single frame, but that dynamic posture is a huge impact. And, you know, whether that sensory information happens, you know, external to us or how we want to interact with the environment, it is going to impact how we move. So when we look at these forward head and round shoulder posture, for example, here you and I are facing a computer. Maybe this conversation gets really exciting and you start leaning into the computer. Maybe you get stressed about your job and you really want to hit this deadline. You start leaning into your computer. You start slouching in your chair. Whatever it is, I think there is a huge environmental component to how we hold ourselves. And then, you know, going back to the nonverbal communication psychological realm, individuals tend to lean towards topics of interest, whether that is changing their foot placement or where their torso leans. So 
you know, you also have that component of it, which encompasses a lot of, you know, an infinite amount of possibilities, really. Yeah. And I, I like that you brought in the environmental side to this because we've kind of been talking about it in isolation, but I'm more often very interested in how surroundings can influence different things. Uh, for instance, like whenever I've, I had the guys on of IKN, uh, Integrated Kinetic Neurology, and we talked a good bit about feed forward and feedback strategies, how we're, how we're always looking for those times of feedback. And, and you need both. We, we didn't say, oh, you don't need this, but like the ability to deal with a chaotic environment where you have to make quick adjustments. That's what most sporting situations are. And I mean, life can be like that too, right? If you step mm -hmm. off of a curve, the reflexive response is going to be really qu uh, quick as far as like how our body feeds forwards those systems. So that I've always been interested in that, how we interact with our environment, because we don't live in isolation for the most part, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting you bring up those points because there is research kind of pointing to the fact that if we do, you know, going back to the nonverbal communication aspect, yes, it can be a chronic thing. So, you know, if you're around a bunch of people that portray those big erect postures with wide gesturing, that's going to impact how you talk to them. And likewise, if they do have those submissive contractive postures, that's also going to impact. But also on a temporary level, if you put someone in a negative posture, research has shown that they have lower self-reported confidence and if they're asked to do a memory recall task, for example, they'll recall more negative emotions and negative word associations than they will positive if they're in a negative posture. So it's very hard to, you know, kind of extrapolate that out into a sporting aspect. But if that does have a tangible, measurable impact in a lab, you could see how potentially maybe an athlete doesn't take a risk or make that risky pass or whatever it is. Um, they might be a little bit more hesitant to make those moves. So what are some of the things that you've referenced several times as far as nonverbal uh, communication through our posture? And, and we've had some things stick out here, but what are some of the biggest things that you feel like may apply to everyday life? You can talk about for a minute here, mm -hmm. just things that kind of stuck out to you that have really kind of, I guess, informed you as you've gone through this whole process. And then some of them that may pertain more to athletics as far as that. So let's talk about lifestyle and mm -hmm. some of the things that are influencing these nonverbal communications in our posture. And then we can go the athletic route after that. So, yeah, a lot of the, especially on a social setting is what drew me to this, this whole topic of nonverbal communication. I was reading a lot of books in that realm and it would state that this posture denotes this certain psychological trait. And then you get into the musculoskeletal rehabilitation world and now we're just talking about on a muscular level and not really addressing that biopsychosocial aspect. So, for example, a dominant and powerful individual is going to have those erect postures, those chest up, chin out kind of things and arms going out away from the body and trying to take up as much space as possible and also draw in as much attention as possible. Conversely, the same is true. So an individual who is less confident on submissive is going to make themselves look smaller. So for yourself and the listeners, Trying to make yourself look smaller is pretty hard to do without rounding your shoulders forward or digging your head into your shoulders. So that kind of is akimbo to the forward head posture and the rounded shoulder posture. So like I mentioned, they are very social aspects that someone is going to look at and give you that psychological trait. And, you know, the easiest example is we may not be able to consciously state what we're seeing, but I'm sure we've all had the feeling of when an individual walks into a room, they're like, oh, that must be someone versus someone just kind of sneaks in the room in the corner and we kind of ignore them. And it's just kind of putting those kind of subconscious cues into a conscious setting and kind of going from there. So, you know, if we see that in a sporting aspect, 
We can look at a very common thing would be like basketball, for example. I'm a huge fan, but you could see it very tangibly, the differences in body language when a timeout is called because the team's on a run. If the team on the good end of that run, let's say they go 10-0, the bench is up, everyone's hype, chest bumping, all that stuff. And then you look at the other team, they got feet dragging, heads kind of looking down, coach is the one that's initiating all the movement. So, you know, could you artificially create some of these positive body language and give you that positive feedback to a psychological state? And then how would that impact? And, and we know, you know, how big of an impact that confidence factor is in an athletic endeavor. You talking about that, that's really intriguing because being a coach and being involved with sports for for so often like I try and really take my athletes in the beginning and it's like an extreme calm down like we, we just completely and totally try and let everything die down all the energy that is out of the room because you see teams that are just bumping yelling listening to music for three hours before the game right especially yeah. teenagers and like we try and calm it down so that they can kind of amp themselves up and slowly build themselves up into that natural process. So be it from breathing, doing different, uh, different cadences with their breathing, uh, different positions with their body, doing different, um, we do different neurological resets and stuff like that. So a lot of that stuff, like I try and build my guys up into that because you see people waste so much energy a lot of the time doing some of this nonverbal stuff. And I'm like, well, there's nobody here to watch your show right now. So so you understand what I'm saying? So I see that a yeah. lot as far as like in competitive uh, environments. And I think that would be you know super interesting research to do, even if it is anecdotal or in scientific in nature, because if you did start from a neutral standpoint and you, you can you can go up, but if you started really hyped and up, you do that kickoff, someone returns it for a touchdown right off the kickoff, you just get deflated. And that deficit from a positive feeling to a negative feeling is much greater than from neutral to negative. So absolutely love that approach and being able to, you know, kind of warrant that confidence versus, you know, pseudo confidence to begin with. Yeah. It's like somebody calling your bluff a, a little bit. kind yeah, of, right? <laughs> it's not a good feeling, right? Uh, so going into this next I really like some of the wording I saw around your writing that you did for Simply Faster and, and mm-hmm. the way that you explain different things. And you kind of alluded to, I guess, before we jumped on that that's closely based around a lot of the work you've been doing and uh, mm-hmm. finishing up your degree. So let's talk about the role of integration rather than isolation, um, which is what we've kind of been talking about here. So let's talk about the term neuromuscular integration um, and why it's better to take a more holistic approach when dealing with different postural issues. Yeah, and I, I think the best way to start this kind of conversation is just to look at what the flip side has done. So lower extremity rehabilitation. There was a debate for a long time about open versus closed kinetic chain, and it doesn't matter which side of the fence you fall on or if it's a balanced approach to rehab, you're going to do both at some point. It would be borderline malpractice to not incorporate any balance or proprioceptive work to an ankle or an ACL rehab during the whole process. We don't really have those measures for an upper body kind of rehabilitation protocol or even strengthening protocol. And then, you know, the obvious answer is, well, we don't walk on our hands like our feet. So it's very hard to get those perturbations and things like that. But how do we replicate that? Like you mentioned, you know, we're not doing sporting performances in a vacuum where we are doing shoulder flexion back to shoulder extension. You know, it's a myriad of movements. And I think that's what, in an essence, the neuromuscular integration approach kind of speaks to is being able to control, you know, muscle strength, power and activation patterns in a frontal plane and a transverse plane, as well as just a sagittal plane, which we commonly just look at. So how does any movement that happens distal to the body impact proximal to the body? 
And then how does our core kind of go with that? So kind of the seminal research, which I guess maybe didn't kick off, but definitely was a big spur in this, is looking at the Y balance scores of a lower extremity functional test and how that and the implications it has to UCL or Tommy John surgery and things like that and seeing the prevalence of that. So interestingly, I think we talked about Tyler before the podcast started, but he talked about the lateral bound being a really good indicator for throwing velocity. So, you know, that traditionally we looked at, oh, great glute med strengthening in a plyometric way. But now it's like, all right, now it has some functionality towards upper extremity. And the work I did for Simply Fast, it really highlighted that we don't have a lot of research that kind of speaks to that neuromuscular integration approach. Rehabilitation that occurs traditionally for forward head posture or rounded shoulder posture, for example, has traditionally been looking that at a vacuum. Let's strengthen the weak muscles. Let's stretch the overactive muscles and then see where we're at and never really integrating that into kind of whole body movements or even daily activities. Yeah. And I'll just preface this before I say it, but the whole, the whole stretching uh, thing, I'm not against stretching. I mm. use stretching often and I, I'm a huge fan of yielding isometrics, which is just to me, sometimes a, a long-term stretch. It can be depending on how you do it. But as far as like determining like what's inhibited, what's, what needs to be strengthened, what needs to be stretched that sometimes that can be a dicey and a dangerous game to play uh, in isolation like that, like you were speaking to. So because posture is so dynamic and such a reflexive response to our environment and to, I guess I'll just say from a neurological perspective as well, because the brain is really running uh, the whole show in regards to that. So when I think if you don't take those into account, then you're playing a dangerous game, in, in my opinion, or you can be. I agree. And I think it's, it's really hard with the upper extremity to conceptualize that because i know we talk about with the lower extremity and let's just stick with acl because it is such a big big industry knee valgus is very evident to watch why balance scores have been validated for a bunch of age groups and athletic levels you can see how an athlete reacts to perturbations or you know doing motion capture or force plate work to see if there's any asymmetry side to side and we just haven't come up with anything upper extremity wise. And there is an upper body wide balance, but it's pretty infrequently used. So, you know, how does a lot of those upper lower extremity, do we have an equivalent for the upper extremity? And then what would that look like? And then, you know, how functional are those things? And as far as like the upper extremity, it, it is difficult. Like even whenever I'm doing athletic prep, like just because of my own limitations, as far as like my space and everything, like mm -hmm. the lower body, there's so many different things. Like I feel like I can do really quickly. Whereas with mm -hmm. the upper body, I'm not saying I can't do these different contrasts and, and stuff, but like you have to get really creative and chaining together the upper body. The lower body tends to, to flow together very nice as far as my preparatory methods. And, and I can see kind of like, I think you were talking about as far as like, yeah, we don't walk on our hands. Like I, I was reading about, you know, the push-ups or the reaches, the wide reaches and the different things that you were talking about. It's just much more difficult to kind of rehab and kind of chain that along uh, like you've been discussing. It's really difficult as well. Just, you know, even talking about that, if, if I gave you no equipment, you'd probably be able to go to town on a lower extremity exercise just to maybe to do in your hotel while you're on holiday. Upper extremity, you can only do so many handstand push-ups before it comes off. And then even talking about that, you know, the equilibrium gets thrown off when you're upside down. So what does your body posture even look like? And, you know, are you arching like crazy in your low back? And how does that impact kind of the shoulder movements that you're doing? 
you said something about like overhead pressing, like when we don't have to go to town on this, but I'm more interested just like in overall exercise selection with you being so interested in posture and examining different things. I feel like there's a point where as a responsible coach, you have to say this person's posture or starting point is not ideal for this certain exercise. Uh, in, in my opinion, it doesn't mean they yeah. can't squat or they can't overhead press or they can't do the different things, yeah. but like you have to build them into it. So could you perhaps talk about what you feel like would be an informed way to work with a certain limitation? You can take overhead pressing because that's like a epidemic uh, amongst most people. They really go through their lumbar spine because they have overhead limitations. So if you'd like to take that when you can. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think even going off that, it's really difficult to find, you know, what that equivalence is. So during COVID with the gyms being shut down, I went down the rabbit hole of gymnastic strength training and using Olympic rings. And that was a really interesting process to me. That's kind of that hybrid between an open and a closed kinetic chain. But, you know, what are those prerequisites? Is it shoulder taps, you know, push-up position before you can progress to this or that? And like you said, there are a myriad of compensation methods that you can have. And, you know, there's even, I've seen people talk about people just doing that overhead press while seated. If you really do have to kick it up off your knees as hard as you can, is that the best form for you? And then how many sports in a functional setting are you actually performing where you're pressing, you know, 40, 50 pounds overhead? You know, building dysfunction on top of dysfunction isn't really going to be the most beneficial way for us going forward. But you know, can you perform basic tasks? And I think it's going to have to eventually be tied to strength within a certain range of motion. If you can't get overhead, like you mentioned, why are we doing overhead work? Or why aren't we building stability before we're talking about, you know, why we count before we start counting in pounds of how much we're moving? To reference a podcast that I've had get a little bit back now, but with Dr. Pat Davidson, like one of my favorite things that he's ever said is like, start with a layup. Don't don't take a half court shot. So whenever you walk in, I'm probably not going to do a push press uh, uh, with you unless I feel like it needs to be done for your sport because you're an overhead athlete. And even then a basketball player, like you alluded to, doesn't need a whole lot of strength per se within that. So just taking all those things into consideration and like thinking about what's the easiest way to go. And I've found by working with larger age groups now that there's so much similarity that can occur. It's just the overall intensity has to change. Like, obviously there's a difference in training a 10 year old and a 20 year old, but they can both kind of learn from similar perspectives. If you apply the appropriate intensity is what I've kind of found. There's like a blurring almost. Agree. And I, I feel like we have a lot better regressions in lower extremity work than we do upper extremity. Like if we could get, you know, that 10, 20 year old comparison you gave, if those 10-year-olds, we got them to the point of doing pistol squats, for example, and they kept that all the way up till they're 20, there's a level of dorsiflexion that not many 20-year-olds and above have that they've got, and that's just second nature to them. So it's what is that? And we talk about, you know, the differences in sexes in adolescence and how they develop. It gets a little bit difficult, you know, upper extremity-wise, you know, how much, how many can hold their weight overhead in terms of a handstand or doing those kind of things. And, you know, I'm sure, as we've all seen, watching athletes do a plank, there's a whole variation of, you know, postures and different techniques that they do to perform that, but they all think they're doing it. So just like you referenced, I think starting with a layup is a great idea, but we don't really have that roadmap. And I think that's kind of the next big thing. 
Because a lot of the times we really preach that all the power does come from the lower extremity, but a lot of the times we're lacking the stability in the upper extremity. So that makes it tough. Yeah. And we're, we're kind of, that'll actually tie pretty nicely to one of these last points that we'll have coming up. But like I, what I said earlier, I said it because in my own personal experience too, having a well-rounded program, like you've, you kind of referenced the fact that you need some specificity in your programming, but at the same time, you need to make sure that athletes are well-rounded and that individuals are well-rounded. I work with people that aren't athletes as well. They're just in general population. And like, you want people to be healthy uh, because that builds resilience and we, we need a more healthy society, right? We have like, a, you know, so many different health issues, but like one of the things I find to be huge bang for buck, and this is overhead is hanging, uh, yeah. hanging off of things. And this was like a light bulb moment for me because I was terrible at it. I could probably bust out like 25. I know I can 25 to 30 pull-ups, no problem. But as far as making me hang up on a bar, like in a little bit, I'm hurting. And that could have a do with, I'm pretty muscular, you know, pretty high weight, I guess, for my height overall. But Mm -hmm. man, it always really pours it on me. And then there's so many variations of that that you could do. You could passively hang and not engage the scap, or you could actively hang. You could do one arm hangs. And then the kind of fun rabbit hole I went into with the gymnastic rings, trying to hang false grip is a totally different kettle of fish that you have to encounter. And like you said, you know, I'm here doing muscle ups and trying to do a, a planche on a on the rings, but I can't even hold a false grip to save my life. So it, it is interesting. And, you know, maybe someone that does gymnastics listening to this is probably laughing. Like, why would he try and do that if he couldn't hold false grip? But to me, I just kind of went about it blindly. But I think without saying it, I think a lot of us do when it comes to upper extremity work where we we do what someone else did or we do what we kind of look at and we never really like connect the dots or have like a set program on how that progresses. Yeah. And this kind of all changed back to that as well, because one thing I wrote down as we were talking is like how varying like your formats of locomotion I found to be really beneficial because we can sit here and you said it, we could reference scapular issues all day, but if you actually make somebody hang like to me, like rings or hanging, they're, they're a great way to talk about these different vocabulary terms that someone's going to go, what are you talking about? I can make you feel it because feel is like extremely important for me. I'd rather you feel it than know what the heck I'm even talking about. I'm like, you feel it, you know it basically, right? Uh, but varying locomotion, like crawling as well. And then I don't even know what you would call it. Uh, there's some vocabulary term out there probably. But basically – where you're holding up with one arm and then you're, it almost looks like an airplane, basically. Like whenever I get up in the mornings, I'll crawl, I'll do those, I'll do different rolls. Um, because you find people have certain limitations. You can't squat deep enough, someone would say, right? Yeah. Look at how they crawl. And it's, it's basically the same response. You just have to get them comfortable within a certain plane. No, absolutely. And I think my most interesting kind of light bulb moment, I was working with the UTA track and field team. And if someone told me you can run 10-5, I would look at you and say you're a great athlete. But then you watch them do some other movements and they have no transverse control or they're so hip flexor dominant, they can't hold many core isolated exercises. So, yeah, like we didn't do any bear crawls or any crawling of that nature to kind of look at that. But we did a lot of basic movements that they just failed miserably at. Like, you know, you run 10-5, but you can't balance with your eyes closed for 30 seconds. 
So I, I think it's a huge component. And, you know, it comes out every year with the NFL draft talking about how many athletes, you know, didn't specialize in a sport of the first round draft picks. And I, I think that really comes into it, especially these days where you have people specializing in sports so young and getting into a movement pattern. And I'm, I'm sure you've experienced it if you've ever tried a new sport or even a jiu-jitsu, for example. You think you're strong and then you try a different thing and you're like, no, uh, no, I'm not. Yeah, I've had I've had many of those experiences. They're fun. <laughs> they're fun though. They're they're good to grow from, right? I can speak yeah. from like you said, jujitsu, soccer, uh being or you know, football for most of the world out there, but like not using my feet at all for so long and then getting interested in soccer and then playing that. I mean, I was terrible. I could run really fast down the field, but I had yeah. no control on the ball. You know, yeah. I, my my motor control was terrible for my lower extremities compared to my upper because I'd played baseball, I'd played uh, American football. So I'm just used to that, right? So yeah. that's yeah, great, great uh, push there as far as one of the positives of uh, multi-sport athletes. So I want to give you an opportunity to talk about something I heard you reference uh, just a bit back in the conversation, proximal mm-hmm. to distal and distal yeah. to proximal. That's something that I've actually, whenever I had the guys from IKN on, uh, we discussed that quite a bit too. Can we talk about different movement strategies as far as distal to proximal, proximal to distal, where it's good to move proximal to distal, you know, perhaps to save energy or or in a response for those uh, smaller tasks and then how we need to actually drive um, in those big movements. Yeah. So we actually kind of referred to it earlier with the overhead press. You know, if you do have to compensate in your low back, how much of a shoulder movement is it? And then when you start to get hundreds of repetitions of this same movement over a month and loaded in a way that's not an everyday load you're either going to lead to interest injury or dysfunctional you know compensation patterns so as we talk about the proximal to distal i think that really ties into it and you know mostly when you talk about distal a lot of the times you're talking about away from the body and maybe on top of the body with the overhead press isn't the immediate thought but being able to stabilize and have everything work as its own unique segment, but then also tie into that term of muscle irradiation, where you're looking at big movements, uh, big muscles, sorry, really consolidating and reinforcing those smaller movements and smaller muscles so they can do the job they're supposed to do rather than doing multiple jobs. That's something that like I referenced in the podcast, it just came out today, actually, with Dr. Weiss, like not that exact thing, but this idea of and we've been referencing actually over these last couple of talking points, providing people with a rich sensory experience or just a rich overall experience to where they know this is what intensity is. This is a lower intensity thing. This is pro- this is more proximally driven. This is more distally driven. Uh, one of the things like I myself have become a bit more obsessed with is letting you like feel the movement. Like I said earlier, like Mm -hmm. slowing down. Um, I had my first training session with this kid today and like, he could not get on time with a certain tempo, um, or rhythm base, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's just because you've been told your whole life that it's good to get from the starting line to the finish line like that. But like being able to experience those different, uh, I guess you would say movement strategies and when to appropriately use them can be really beneficial. I feel like. No, absolutely. And, you know, your example of the hanging was a really good version of that too, because I think that is that proximal to distal stability component because, you know, you don't have that distal strength to be able to grip a bar and support your own weight, but you're able to do 20 pull-ups because that moment where the lever arms are at their longest, you're only there for a split second as you transition to that eccentric phase. So, you know, 
I think that's a very easily readily available example, but I just wonder how many of those we have that we can't maybe look at in a, in just in a siphon and say like that is, you know, a proximal to distal example, but it has to be happening on either a macro or micro level that's going to be impacting performance or increasing injury susceptibility. All good points. I've, I've enjoyed the perspective that I've, I've heard from you uh, so far. I can't wait to see more of the different things that you're going to put out there. As you referenced, you just put out your uh, first article, I guess, was Simply Faster, and you have more mm-hmm. things kind of probably coming down the line. So just tell people where they can find you at, kind of what to look out for with you in the future, and we'll, we'll bounce off after that. Yeah, first off, thanks for having me. Had a ball of a time and love to go down the rabbit holes because very few people indulge these conversations. So been good to do it. Um, but yeah, my Instagram is readily available. That's just my name, Samuel.Lawman. Uh, happy to engage in conversations or whatever that may be. And you'll see me on my rings there too. So looking forward to um, really exploring my more. And, you know, with the end of my dissertation, I really looked at the differences in psychological outcomes between individuals with good posture and bad posture. And although we have the data and the results from that, we haven't published any of that. So I'm looking forward to you know, publishing that and perhaps having more conversations like this specific to those, you know, even we talked about the sporting example about the differences in, you know, reactions between a timeout of the team that's on a run versus not on a run. I'd like to really explore that. And then, you know, maybe even get to the point where we look at individuals with certain mental diagnoses like anxiety or depression. What are their postural commonalities? Could we fix that? And could we start this positive feedback loop from that? Yeah, it's, it's been really fun going through this conversation. The term posture, sometimes I always scare myself whenever I, I line up a podcast because I'm like, oh, we're going to talk about posture. It's a huge topic. There's so many different yeah. uh, things that you can go down. So I was glad we were able to pick through a couple of things. Um, I really like, you know, you talking about the nonverbal side of things uh, as far as like the evolutionary response to things. I always talk about that on this podcast. Um, so I was interested to hear that. But a big thing like posture, glad to hear you you were able to pick through some different things today mm-hmm. because the shapes which we take, they're they're going to dictate like how we express ourselves. I'm mm-hmm. more often not thinking about things like in a static way. I'm always trying to look at how we move through a dynamic world and how we respond to different things and try and take some more static means and transfer them there, hopefully, um, and not waste people's time, right, with drills, needless drills yeah, and different things. Absolutely. But the thing is, like, posture is huge, and your starting point is extremely important, and how that moves along throughout the whole process is extremely important. Naturally, with me being more involved with the neurological side of things, I've always been interested in posture because these things are closely uh, linked and correlated. So I've really enjoyed the conversation we had. Hopefully we can sit down again another day and dice it uh, out some more uh, as you continue to put more content out there. So thanks for taking time to sit down with me today. Yeah, no, absolutely. I had a blast. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Check the notes for links to Sam's article covering much of his research as well as his Instagram. Make sure to check out all the different amino blends offered from our sponsor at The Amino Co. Links can be found in the show notes as well as on the website. Make sure to use the code FTG at checkout to save 30% off the price. Don't forget to sign up for the monthly newsletter provide the main points for episodes on a monthly basis. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or any major platform where podcasts are offered. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.